Well, today in our series on the book of Acts, we are going to come to seven silent years. It's silent in the book of Acts, but we're going to fill in some gaps. Uh, seven years that are really, really important to church history. And in these seven years, we're going to see glimpses of two very, very important people in the whole New Testament story. And those people are Barnabas and Paul. And the glimpses we see of them are extraordinary. And so they are our examples in so many ways. So let's talk about the secret years, the seven secret years in the book of Acts in the early church's history. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19, we read, Now those who were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came into the ears of the church which was at Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came, and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would remain loyal to the Lord. So we see a glimpse, but there's so much happening at this time. In verse 24, Barnabas was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And many people were added unto the Lord. Then Barnabas departed to, Sars, to Tarsus to seek Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. It came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught many people. And the disciples were Christians, called Christians first in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren who resided in Judea, which they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. All right, so what you don't see happening here is there's this really big shift. So far, the church of Jerusalem has been virtually the only game in town. But now there's going to be another church in Antioch up north in the nation of Syria, in the province of Syria, Cilicia. And that church in the city of Antioch is going to become at least as important as the church in Jerusalem for the rest of the history of the book of Acts. We want to talk about the great example of Barnabas, and he is such a great example of love. And there we're going to say something about the great example of Paul. And he is such an example of loyalty. And so I want to point out these examples in the midst of all of this church history. And first of all, let me just remind you what our timeline is here. We have certain time stamps in the book of Acts, which is why we know that something happens for three years or seven years or whatever we talk about. And these time stamps are really important just to give you a feel for what's happening in the book of Acts. First of all, the time stamp of 32 A.D. This really strong contender for the correct year of Jesus' death. So we know that Jesus was baptized when he was about 30 years old. So it says in Scripture at his baptism. He was about 30 years old. And we know that Jesus went through three Passovers, and then the fourth one was the one in which he died. And before the first Passover, which was about the time of the interview with Nicodemus, he had been collecting disciples, so that took a couple of months so we basically have three years of the life of Christ plus another couple of months to collect the disciples. All right, so Jesus served for about 
three years, a little more, three years and two months. And it began when he was about 30 years old. So he died in about 32 AD when we reckon it according to what we know about his chronology, Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, plus the eclipses that were supposed to surround the death of King Herod, who was interviewed by the wise men and died shortly after. So 32, that's pretty good. 44 AD. Well, this is a generally accepted date for the death of Herod Agrippa I. And we read about that in Acts 12. So we know where we are in Acts 12. And then 49 AD. That's an important time stamp. That's the generally accepted date for the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So we know where we are at the beginning of Acts. We know where we are when we come to Acts 12 and the death of Herod. And we know where we are when we come to the Jerusalem Council. So that helps us fill in the gaps. Now we know that there are these important periods in Paul's life. The first important period was the three years that he spent in the area of Damascus in the province of Arabia. All right, Damascus, Arabia. This is 32 to 35. Shortly after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, Saul becomes a Christian and he spends three years, he says, three years, he tells us, three years in Damascus and Arabia. All right. The second great period of time is seven years in Tarsus, Syria, Cilicia. And that's what we're talking about today. It's during this time, uh, after his first three years in his Jerusalem visit, and he had to run from Jerusalem because they tried to kill him, there were seven years they sent him up to Tarsus, and that's where he served uh, for seven years. All right. Now, having set the stage for this timeline, seven years. What's going on in the church during these seven years? Well, Barnabas is going to figure in prominently. Barnabas is a wonderful person, and he is perhaps less recognized for his public speaking. Uh, he is a more quiet person. He is not recognized as a spokesperson for the early church. But he was the go-to ambassador of the apostles. Whenever something needed to be done, whenever somebody needed to go somewhere or be entrusted with a task, they would send Barnabas. He was the go-to person. And what we read about him is that he was always deeply eager to lift and to serve people. That's what he was. That's like what he was all about. And he was utterly reliable. And we want you to be like Barnabas. We all pray to be like Barnabas. We know he was the go-to ambassador of the apostles because look what happens in this short section of Scripture in the book of Acts. He was the one who brought Paul to the disciples when they were all afraid of him because he had persecuted the church, right? And then he became a Christian and they said, no, we don't believe that. So he'd been serving up in Damascus, Arabia for three years. Now he comes down to Jerusalem for the first time and everybody's still afraid of him. And Barnabas takes him to the disciples, to the apostles, and he says, you can trust him. He's been preaching boldly in Damascus for all these three years and he saw the Lord Jesus in the way and Jesus spoke to him. You can trust him. He's utterly reliable. And so Barnabas is the one that brings Paul and the Jerusalem Christians together in peace. Barnabas is the one who was sent out in Acts chapter 11 to scout out this new church that's beginning to blossom up in Antioch in Syria. So the apostles say, we hear that the Lord's doing a great thing up in Antioch. Barnabas, go check it out. They send Barnabas. He's like the ambassador of the Jerusalem apostles. He's the one who recruited Paul for ministry. Also in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas sees what's happening in Antioch and he says, you know what? We need Paul here. So uh, he goes to Tarsus and he finds Paul and he brings him back to Antioch and then he serves 
Paul serves there for a whole year with Barnabas. He's the one who was chosen for the famine relief money visit. So imagine all the Christians up in Antioch hear that the Christians down south in Jerusalem have gotten poor. Uh, remember how they had that Christian communism. They lived in a commune. Everybody sold their land and then they pooled the money together and gave everybody what they needed for rent and groceries. But nobody had any further income. So once all of that money was used up, they didn't have anything. The Christians up in Antioch said, well, we're going to help the poor Christians down in Jerusalem. So they got a pile of money together. And then the question comes, and who shall we send with the money? And the answer is, well, let's send Barnabas. He's, he's utterly reliable. He'll take care of the money. So Barnabas and Paul are sent as ambassadors to the Jerusalem church with a financial gift. Then, of course, in chapter 13, Barnabas is chosen with Paul to be the first ever missionaries. Uh, they're going to be the ambassadors of the church to the world. And then in chapter 15, Barnabas is prominently featured in the Jerusalem Council. We have to get all the apostles, all the leaders of the church together and decide what we're going to do here with this question of whether a person needs to obey the law of Moses or not to be a good Christian. And we need Barnabas here to do that. Barnabas is featured. In Acts chapter 15, again, uh, the Jerusalem Council has ended. They say, who will we send now back to the people in Antioch to give the message of what we've decided at the council? They said, send Barnabas. So once again, Barnabas and Saul together and two others are sent up to Antioch with the official word from the Jerusalem council. And then in Acts 15, verse 39, Barnabas launches his own missionary journey, taking with him John Mark, his young friend and relative. He is the go-to guy. He always is the ambassador. He is utterly reliable and he just loves to help people. He's extremely generous in Acts chapter 4. And Joseph, we would probably say Joseph, but okay. Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which being interpreted as the son of consolation. Consolation is comfort, encouragement, inspiration. Barnabas is just an inspiration to be around. When Barnabas walks into a room, the whole place is better. I was talking to a lady one time who was uh, offered a marriage proposal. And um, she said, I don't know if I want to say yes or no. I don't know what I think. The relationship is new. I don't know. And I said, well, what might happen is someday that fellow is going to be visiting you. And as he backs his car out of the driveway and leaves, you're going to say to yourself, I wish he didn't have to go. And then you'll know if you should marry him or not. Barnabas is the kind of guy who, when he leaves the church parking lot, when he leaves your house, you think, I'm sorry to see him go. Life is better when he's here. He is a consolation. He's a comfort to me. He's an encouragement to me. He inspires me. And so he lived up to his name. It says in verse 37, he's a Levite and a person from the country of Cyprus. He didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived in an island uh, area where there were lots of um, Gentile people. In verse 37, having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, real estate has always been king when it comes to wealth. And he was a landowner. And he sold his land and donated it. It's a pretty big deal. So he's extremely generous. He's less vocal than others. 
In Acts chapter 14, he and Paul are on their first missionary tour. They go to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And when they're in Iconium, um, they heal a man who has been all of his life unable to walk. Well, this creates such a stir that the people think they must be gods. Paul and Barnabas must be gods. And so it says in verse 12, they call Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercury. Uh, Jupiter is another name for the god Zeus. Mercury is another name for the god Hermes. And they decided that Paul must be Mercury because he was the chief speaker. And in Greek and Roman religion, Hermes or Mercury was always the one who spoke for Zeus. Say, well, look at Barnabas and Paul. They're like the gods and they wanted to offer them a sacrifice. They thought, well, Paul, he says most of the stuff. He's the chief speaker, so he must be Hermes. And then Barnabas, oh, he, he must be Zeus. And so Barnabas was a little more soft-spoken. He wasn't the spokesperson in all these cases. You notice he's just eager to lift and to serve. He just wants to elevate people wherever he goes. Eager to lift, eager to serve. In chapter 11, verse 23, when Barnabas came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. That is, he sent up to Antioch, the Jerusalem apostles say, we hear something big is happening up there. So go up to Syria, Antioch, and check it out and tell us what's going on. So he does. When Barnabas came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all, exhorted. He comforted, encouraged, inspired. He inspired them. He inspired them all. That with purpose of heart, they would remain loyal to the Lord. And he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Remember, he's characteristically filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, he is characteristically obedient. Whatever the Lord wants him to do, he just does. And because he is characteristically obedient... He has opened every avenue of his life to the Holy Spirit. He is walking in the Spirit. He is led by the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. And that's just how you find him, day in and day out. It doesn't mean that he's perfect and he never has lapses. But the lapses are so brief that you're not really going to catch him in one of those lapses, probably. He just gets right with the Lord right away. He's characteristically full of the Holy Spirit. It's the kind of person he was. In chapter 9, verse 26, it says when Saul had come to Jerusalem, this is when he uh, helps bridge the gap between Saul who persecuted the church and the disciples in Jerusalem who are afraid of him. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join himself to the disciples in Jerusalem, but they were all afraid of him in Jerusalem. And they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas wasn't afraid. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how Paul had seen the Lord in the road to Damascus. And the Lord had spoken to Paul. And now Paul had preached boldly at Damascus. He's utterly reliable, utterly sincere. He preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. He lifted Paul. He encouraged everybody. He brought them together as a peacemaker. Interesting, Barnabas recognized the good that he saw in others. So Acts 11.25, again, um, Barnabas goes up to Antioch to check out what strange things the Lord has been doing up there. He's delighted. He sees this is a big work. You have to know Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria, Egypt. You have Antioch 
It's a very, very important place. And people are being saved up there left and right and a lot of Gentile people. So pretty soon, Antioch is going to be just as important to the early church as Jerusalem. Uh, Antioch is big and it's getting bigger fast. So Barnabas goes up there and he says, you know who we really need here? We need Saul. I mean, all of these people who are Gentiles are coming to know the Lord. And who knows more about Gentiles than Saul? We need Saul here. So Barnabas departed to Tarsus to seek Saul because Saul has been up there for seven years in and around his home area in Tarsus. That's why we call him Saul of Tarsus. It's where he's from. And for seven years after he becomes a Christian, he goes back there. So Barnabas departed to Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. It came to pass that a whole year, Saul and Barnabas assembled themselves with the church and taught many people. So Barnabas says, you know, I'm okay as a servant of God. And this is a big thing happening here. You know who we really need. We need Saul. We've got to get Saul. And I wonder who else in the whole church was thinking that at the time. How did Barnabas know? How did he see the good in Saul? How did he see the potential? One of the nicest things you can ever do for someone is see their potential in Christ. Uh, To be able to say, I see in you that there's something very good and the Lord is going to use you in a beautiful way. Just follow Jesus, will you? And that's Barnabas. He just sees in Saul something very, very good. He's utterly reliable. We mentioned this, but in Acts eleven twenty eight, 28, uh, the prophets came along in Antioch and said, well, there's going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which did come to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. And then the disciples up in Antioch, every man according to his ability, some had wealth, like Barnabas had wealth, and some didn't have much wealth. And they determined to send relief to the brethren who resided in Judea. Our our Fellow brothers and even the apostles down south, they don't have much food. They don't have a lot. Let's give them a gift. And so that's the idea. Everybody give whatever you can. We're going to take care of the Christian brothers down south. In verse 30, which they also did. They collected the gift and they sent it to the elders down in Jerusalem by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. I wouldn't be surprised if Barnabas, the generous one, gave an awful lot of money to that fund himself, whether he did or not. They said, now who can we trust who will bring this money, who will be our ambassador down to the apostles and brothers in Judea? And the answer was, well, let's trust Barnabas because he's utterly reliable. Barnabas and Saul, let's send them. And that's the way it went. You should pray that the Lord will bring many Barnabases into your life. Matter of fact, you should pray that the Lord bring any Barnabases into your life because this is a rare breed. There aren't many Barnabases left. Where are the people who lift the room when they walk in, who inspire, who encourage? When they walk in, you say, I'm glad to see them here because now it's going to be a better gathering because they've come. These are the Barnabases in our world. And there are certain people who have decided to be anti-Barnabases. They bring people down. They beat them. They flog them. They discourage them. And we've all been that more often than we wish. Pray that the Lord will bring Barnabas is into your life. Any Barnabas is into your life and pray that you yourself will be a Barnabas. Extremely generous. Feeling no need to be the person up front, the spokesperson. I don't need to have the final word. Eager to lift and to serve. Recognizing the potential in others and utterly reliable.
Now let's talk about the great example of Paul. Well, of course, this is seven years silent. Paul's up in Tarsus and we don't really know what's been happening. Of course, we have an idea what's happening uh, in that period of time in Antioch because Barnabas went up there, gave us the report, and so we have something about that. But what has Paul been doing for seven years up in Tarsus, in and out of the uh, cities and areas in the combined province of Syria, Cilicia? Uh, last time we talked about Paul's biography. We remind you that Paul became the great theologian of the Christian church, by far the greatest theologian of the Christian church, unparalleled in what he knew, unparalleled in what he taught. But the character trait that seems to have marked, that seems to have overshadowed, overwhelmed every other part of Paul's personality and work is the character trait of loyalty. Devoting his entire being to the pleasure and reputation of Jesus. That is, the pleasure of Jesus was basically his first and only consideration in life. The consideration was so strong that no other consideration ever seemed to register in his mind. And that doesn't mean that he saw only that because it was his first and only consideration by Jesus himself wanted Paul to consider dozens, hundreds, thousands of other people. And because that's what the Lord wanted, then those dozens and hundreds and thousands of other people also became his consideration. But all of that was founded on one chief consideration, first and foremost, above everything else, almost to make no other consideration register, and that consideration was loyalty. The Christian church has probably never seen anybody else as loyal to Jesus as Paul. And he is our example in so many ways. All right, let's remind you of what's happening in these seven years. In Acts 9, 29, you remember? Uh, in Damascus, where Paul had been serving for three years, the Jewish people eventually got fed up with him and they wanted to kill him. He says, I say the truth in Christ. Is that here? Mm, I didn't put it here. We'll come to it later. I say the truth in Christ. Through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and I escaped. You got to get out of Damascus. Trouble. So he went after three years of ministry to Jerusalem. He's only in Jerusalem for 15 days. <gasps> Trouble. They want to kill me here too. So the disciples sent him up to Tarsus. That's this. Acts 9.29. And he spoke boldly in Jerusalem in the name of Jesus for 15 days. But then they went about to kill him. He was almost killed in Damascus. Comes down to Jerusalem after two weeks, almost killed there. Which when the brethren knew, they sent him forth to Tarsus. Paul, you got to get out of here. They're going to kill you in Jerusalem. And you can't go back to Damascus. Go home, Saul of Tarsus. Go home. Go back up where you belong in Tarsus, which he did. Galatians 1.21, Paul talks about this. Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Well, that's because Tarsus is an important city in the combined province of Syria and Cilicia. Let's just say it as one word, Syria Cilicia. So Tarsus is in Syria Cilicia. So he goes back home to his home province. And he was unknown by faith under the churches of Judea. That's where he came from, right? Uh, Judea is the region. Jerusalem is the city. They want to kill him. And uh, all the people there didn't know to trust him. And so eventually they do trust him, but the Jewish people hate him. And so to Tarsus he goes. He's got to flee. He's got to go back to his home area. 
just to remind you on a map where all this is. I know you can't see all this very well, but maybe you can see uh, the blue there. That's the Mediterranean Sea. It always looks to me like a dog's nose. And so at the point of the dog's nose, the top part of the dog's nose, uh, you'll see a yellow area. That's Antioch. That's the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. And it's becoming the most important city for the Christian church behind Jerusalem, but eventually catching up to Jerusalem and then surpassing Jerusalem. All right. You see the red areas. They are pointing to Syria and Cilicia. That's the combined province of Syria, Cilicia. You see the blue arrow that's pointing to Tarsus. That's Paul's home area. That's his headquarters for seven years. And just for uh, comparison, you see the green arrow at the bottom that's pointing to Damascus. That's where Paul was saved. Uh, The pink arrow near the very bottom of the map, that's Jerusalem. So Paul was saved in Damascus. After three years, he went south to Jerusalem where the pink arrow is. They said, you got to get out of here. And they sent him up to the blue arrow. That's Tarsus. And the blue arrow is in the province of Syria, Cilicia. Those are the red arrows. All right. For the next seven years then, Paul would use his home area as his home base. And he would crisscross back and forth in Syria, Cilicia, the combined province, and Tarsus as his uh, direct home uh, and and crisscrossing back and forth serving the Lord. And here we see, uh, not from the book of Acts, but from other places in Scripture, that this was quite a time. This seven silent years was quite a time. Paul tells us something about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and following. He has to defend his apostleship. Uh, Wherever he goes, he's questioned. And so he has to defend his apostleship. And he says, are those other people who talk to you, um, you know, church leaders, teachers, are they the ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I hate bragging, but I have to set you straight. Are they the ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more than they are. He says, in labors more abundant, they haven't worked as hard as I have. In lashes above measure, I've been beaten, have they? In lashes, too many to count. In prisons... More frequent, I've been incarcerated over and over again. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths, often, everybody keeps trying to kill me. There's a sentence of death on every aspect of my life. He says in verse 24, Of the Jews, five times I received 40 lashes except one, and three times I was beaten with rods. So altogether, you have eight beatings there. Five with a whip, three with wooden rods. And here's what you have to know. We know in the book of Acts about one beating. That's when Paul was in Philippi. So we know about that. But we're not talking about one beating here. We're talking about eight beatings. And in the whole book of Acts, we only see the one. That means seven of these beatings that he's talking about took place before uh, the writing of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians was written in what we would call Acts 19. So he has to have seven beatings before Acts 19. We know of one in Acts 16. So eight altogether, one in Acts 16. Where are the other seven beatings? And the answer is the seven quiet years when he's up in Tarsus in the combined province of Syria, Cilicia. Beaten over and over again. We didn't know that was happening uh, from the book of Acts. But Paul says that is the case. He goes on in that text. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was stoned. Uh, we do know about that because that was in Acts 14. So if Second Corinthians, where we're reading, was written in Acts 19, well, we know about one stoning in Acts 14 when Paul was in Lystra. But then this one comes along in yellow. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day, I've been in the deep water. All that night and all the next day, I'm swimming or floating until help comes or I'm able to get to shore. Three times. All right, well, in the book of Acts, we know of one shipwreck. And that shipwreck is talked about in Acts 27, but that shipwreck is long after 2 Corinthians has been written. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, actually, I've been in a shipwreck three times. The one we know about is the fourth shipwreck. So three times Paul's been in shipwreck during that time when he was serving in Tarsus, Syria, Cilicia. We have no idea. He's up there slugging it out for the Lord. He's doing the best he can, pretty much all alone in Gentile territory most of the time. And he's like a hero, and we don't even know it if he didn't write this text. And he only wrote this text. I hate to brag, but everybody wonders, am I a, a for real sincere apostle? Well, I must be because I keep getting shipwrecked and beaten. I must be the real deal. And then what he writes here, this could happen, you know, anytime in the book of Acts, not necessarily in the seven quiet years up in Tarsus, Syria, Cilicia. He says in journeys, often in dangers of waters. Yeah. In dangers of robbers. Yeah. In dangers by my own countrymen. Yeah. In dangers by the Gentiles. Yeah. In dangers in the city and dangers in the wilderness and dangers in the sea and dangers among false brethren. That could be anywhere in the seven silent years or thereafter, what we're familiar with from the book of Acts. In weariness and painfulness and sleeplessness, often, I don't get sleep a lot of times. In hunger and thirst and fastings, often, I'm not voluntarily fasting, I have no food. Fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And besides those things that are external, that which comes upon me daily, the care of all the churches, who's weak and I'm not weak? I feel sick for you. You're sick, I'm sick. Who is offended and I do not burn? You hurt, I hurt. He says, if it is necessary for me to glory, we don't say that. We would probably say boast, but even that's not the great idea. Uh, glory is radiate. If it's necessary for me to radiate, I will radiate over the things that concern my weaknesses. And then this. Uh, the escape from Damascus, remember? Uh, the Governor under Eretus the king kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to apprehend me and through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall. So that was something we know about from the book of Acts. But then this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. Okay, think, think, think. We have uh, 2 Corinthians written in 56 AD approximately. That's, that's solid, 56. And he says... 14 years ago, okay, 56, 14 years ago. Well, we have to be talking about things that took place before 42 A.D. Well, Barnabas didn't bring Paul to Antioch until 43. So it's when he's in this Tarsus, Syria, Cilicia stage of his life, this is happening. Before 42 A.D., he says, I knew this person. 
Whether in the body, I cannot tell or out of the body. I might have been dead, he's saying. I'm not sure if I was dead or nearly dead. If I was dying, maybe my heart was beating. Don't know. In the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. He visited heaven. A near-death experience. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man. Whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. How he was caught up to paradise. And he heard unspeakable, we would say, inexpressible words. Inexpressible words. Which it is not lawful, we would say, permitted. It's not... It's too sacred for me to even talk about. I'm not allowed to tell you what I heard. But anyway, it's inexpressible. I couldn't tell you anyway. Now, if Paul did really die, he said this was before 42 AD, up in the Tarsus Sirius Lycia years. And by the way, everybody agrees that Paul's talking about himself here. He just is trying not to toot his own horn. But if he really did die, that would be before 42 AD. Well, when we're reading in Acts 14 about the time he was stoned and left for dead in in Lystra, that's Acts 14. If Paul really did die in Lystra in Acts 14, and he really did die before 42 AD, while he's up in the Tarsus Sirius Cilicia ministry, then that means two times in Paul's life he died and came back to life. And that is the most likely interpretation of both of these texts. Unbelievable. He just keeps going and going and going. Unbelievable. Pray that you will be like Paul. A steely loyalty. So loyal to Christ that it was his first and only consideration. There was no other consideration. Consider whether you're healthy Or alive? No. It means nothing to me. Consider whether you have to go it alone. means nothing to me. The first and only consideration is the pleasure and reputation of Jesus. Nothing else matters at all except as the Lord wishes for me to have consideration for dozens and hundreds of other people. And of course, if that's what the Lord wants. But I only consider the dozens and the hundreds so warmly because Jesus is my first and only consideration and he wants me to have these considerations, so I have these other considerations. But it's absolute, iron core loyalty. Unbelievable. Pray that you will be like Paul. On December 7th, 1998, there's a terrible earthquake in Armenia and... uh, 25,000 people, give or take, died in that earthquake, a terrible earthquake. This one man rushed to his son's school because the school had collapsed. And uh, it was nothing but rubble, a, a complete disaster. And he sat surveying the rubble. And he knew in his heart that his son would have been in class there. He could imagine where the classroom would have been. And he ran over to that portion of the rubble and he just started moving bricks, getting everything out of the way. And people said, you know, sir, you're not allowed to be here. Get back, get back. And he wasn't listening to anybody. Um, He had told his son many times in the course of his life, no matter what happens, Armand, 
I will always be there. That's what he said. Well, seeing this rubble, his first and only consideration was to get to Armand. And he knew about where his classroom would be. Forget it. They're all dead. That's what people kept telling him. And he said, well, you can criticize me or you can help lift these bricks. But I'm not leaving. And he just kept pulling the bricks away. And sometimes people would help. But they didn't help for very long because it was hour after hour. He did this for 10 hours, for 20 hours, for 30 hours, just moving bricks. Nobody else wanted to do that. Then finally, after 38 hours nonstop moving the bricks, he called out, Armand! And he hears this weak little voice, Papa? And he knew it was Armand's voice. He kept digging. He found his son, Armand. And then, actually, 14 of the 33 students in Armand's classroom survived, were brought out from the rubble. And Armand told all of his students, he said, I told you my father wouldn't forget us. That's it, the steely resolve. I said I would do it. It's my first and only consideration, and nothing else moves me. See, that's just so beautiful. And it's for the sake of love. In that wonderful love story, Severe Mercy, we read about Van and Davy. Davy is the girl. They call her Davy because her maiden name was Davis, Jean Davis. And so uh, they called him, they called her Davy. And uh, she has a liver problem. They don't really know why. Uh, she just had a liver disease and they couldn't save her. So the doctor gave Van the news. Uh, they're just a young couple so deeply in love. Van says, as I left the doctor's cool, air-conditioned office for the hot ward, I had to walk all the way down a corridor that seemed to stretch white and antiseptic for miles. A very long corridor with Davy at the end of it. What was I to say to her? A resolution was building in me to sustain her, to hold her through what lay ahead. I must be strong when I told her. Tomorrow I would be strong and then I would tell her, and sustain her in her hour of knowing. Above all, I tried to face what lay ahead. I cleared for action like a frigate going into battle, throwing out of my life everything not relevant to Davy or to my job at the college. An iron resolution built up in me, perhaps the most powerful and unswerving of all my life, that in the months ahead, I would do all and be all for her. I would sustain her and hold her up with my love. And during the months in the hospital, I was not to miss even one day in coming to her, almost always twice. Otherwise, I taught my classes, and that was all. Everything that was not Davy was a blur. You see, the first and only consideration This is what my life is. From this day forward, this is what my life is. And it's that that steely resolve. It's loyalty that is birthed from love and nothing will shake it. That's what Paul felt about the Lord Jesus. There was just nothing he wouldn't do if it killed him. If it killed him twice and put him in shipwrecks. And he was beaten half to death eight times. It just didn't matter. It was the first and only consideration. Amazing. Sage Spurgeon said this so well, it is the cry, I'm sure, of 
your heart and mine. But he says it so beautifully. He says, there came to us a time, beautiful and a joy forever, when we felt conquered at the feet of Christ. It was then that loving Christ, we loved his cause and felt that there was not in our veins one drop of blood we did not owe a thousand times over to him. This feeling became a passion. It grew upon us. We asked to die rather than do wrong. We felt his strong, tender hand upon our burning forehead and told him then the deep purpose of our soul to be his alone forever, like the Apostle Paul, maybe like you. Love and lift. Pray that God will bring many Barnabases into your life or any Barnabases into your life and pray that you will be a Barnabas and pray that you'll be like Paul with a steel iron core loyalty that totally overwhelms every other consideration in your life. And these are our examples in the book of Acts. Can we stand and be dismissed with prayer? Father God, we all want to freshly commit our hearts and our lives to you today. We realize that so many times we haven't done a particularly good job for you. But that was the past, this is the present. And today, we want to tell you with all of our hearts that we will follow you. If it kills us, we will follow you. We will put you first. Your pleasure and reputation in this world will be the first and only consideration in our hearts that overwhelms every other consideration. We pray that you'll Help us to be true to our commitments in Jesus' name. Amen.